Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Please be warned that this episode contains graphic descriptions of sexual assault. Listener discretion is strongly advised. When a serious crime is committed in a small town, a handful of detectives are charged with solving the case. I'm Yardley, and I'm fascinated by these stories. So I invited my friends, Detectives Dan and Dave to help me gather the best true crime cases from around the country and have the men and women who investigated them tell us how it happened. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins from small town USA. Dave investigated sex crimes and crimes against children. He's now a patrol sergeant at his police department. Dan investigated violent crimes. He's now retired. Together, we have more than two decades experience and have worked hundreds of cases. We've altered names, places, relationships, and certain details in these cases to maintain the privacy of the victims and their families. So we ask you to join us in protecting their true identities, as well as the locations of these crimes, out of respect for everyone involved. Thank you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dan. Good morning. Good morning. So good to see you. Great to be here. (laughs) And we have Detective Dave. Great to be here. Great to see you. And, okay, small town fam, I hope you're sitting down. Because, are you ready? We have Paul Holes. Hi. We're so happy that you're back. I love you guys. This is awesome to be back. You're awesome. You kind of got to nail Paul down, like... He's been all over the place. (laughs) He really has. We are huge fans of your own podcast, The Murder Squad. Thank you. And, of course, your television show, The DNA of Murder. Talking about nailing down, I feel like trying to put your thumb on a bead of mercury. I know when we were trying to coordinate me getting here, it was a little problematic, but fortunately we were able to get the stars to align, and here I am. We're very grateful. So for the three people who may not know anything about you, Paul, you, of course, really came into the public eye, was it about two years ago now, when your team broke the Golden State Killer case? That's about right. It was April 24th, 2018. That's when D'Angelo was taken into custody and we, you know, had the press conference and I haven't stopped since. It's just been crazy. Crazy. And it was a really fascinating technique that you used building a family tree from DNA, which you talk about extensively on your own podcast and many interviews out there, small town fam, you should Google them because it's changed everything. And that technique, which I remember you saying took months to build that tree, the next time you did it, it took a couple of hours. Well, (laughs) (laughs) with Golden State Killer and using the genealogy technique, yes, it did take months. And I think what we're seeing today since we employed it in the Golden State Killer, it was sort of like the dam has broken, you know, and law enforcement across the nation has been trying to solve their own cases. And the most recent figure that I've heard is right around 100 
cold cases across the nation have been solved using this genetic genealogy technique since it was first used with the Golden State Killer. That's amazing. That must be so gratifying, not only to have caught one of the most prolific serial offenders in American history, but to have introduced a technique that can give closure to a hundred more families. Most certainly that has been great to see how it has gone. And these are the most horrific cases that are being solved using this technique. And it's important to underscore, this was not a technique that I developed. This was a technique that came out of the genetic genealogy world. They were using it to help adoptees find their biological parents. And I just happened to kind of stumble across it and form a little team. And we used it, and it just happened to work on basically the biggest case in the nation, the Golden State Killer. We couldn't think of a better case for this technique to first be used because you can imagine the privacy advocates, there'd be a huge outcry with the use of genetic genealogy. But then people, once they see, oh, we caught the Golden State Killer, then they go, hmm, well, that's worth doing. Yes. Well, Paul... One of the cases that you had a lot to do with that is, I want to say recently broken, is the NorCal rapist. That's right. I looked it up. He was arrested in the fall of 2018. Sounds right. Yes, I believe September. And so I wonder if you could talk to us about that case because he eluded law enforcement for quite some time, didn't he? He did. NorCal rapist. I was heavily involved in that case, and my involvement started basically November 1st, 1996. Wow. And that was a result of the agency. Actually, the town where my office was in is Martinez, California, which is in the Bay Area. Which, for our listeners who don't live in the U.S., is about an hour north of San Francisco. Yeah. So, Martinez PD had a rape on Halloween. So October 31st, 1996, and we had a woman, she was an Asian woman who lived in her own house but lived alone, and she had been dealing with the trick-or-treaters. And at a certain point, it's getting later in the evening, trick-or-treaters have stopped. She's basically tired. She kind of fell asleep on the sofa, and then she's just startled awake by a knock on the door. And she thinks it's another trick-or-treater. So she goes to open up the door, and standing, when she opens the door, is an adult man that has one of those skeleton masks on. And he immediately comes inside the house, forces her down onto the ground. I believe he used zip ties to bind her wrists and her ankles and had duct tape and ended up blinding her with the duct tape, gagging her with the duct tape, and went through the house to make sure nobody was there and carried her upstairs and tied her to her own bed, spread-eagled her, cut her clothes off. He shaved her pubic hair. He used her vacuum and vacuumed up all the pubic hair and proceeded to rape her repeatedly over the course of many hours. And he found a box of condoms inside her residence. So each time he raped her, he had a condom on. And after he finished, he'd get up and he flushed the condom down the toilet. So he's getting rid of the evidence. So could you imagine? And she's blindfolded. She's gagged with the duct tape. She's spread-eagled, tied to the bed. And as she's laying there, also flashes like he's taking pictures. Oh, God. And this is a guy that would lay down next to her, stroke her hair, whisper sweet nothings into her ear. It's just infuriating. Yeah. You have a name for that kind of offender. I remember you've given us their sort of four types So you have what's called Groth's rapist typologies. You have your power reassurance, power assertive. You have your anger retaliatory. And then you have your sexual sadist. And the power reassurance type of offender is what NorCal rapist is. He is the one that is trying to make this seem like it's a consensual encounter. So at the end of this attack, after many hours, he ends up forcing this victim to give him her ATM pin, he takes her ATM card, he ends up leaving the house, leaving her in her bed, and then um, goes to an ATM and does a maximum withdrawal of cash. And I remember the pictures from that transaction are creepy as hell. That is actually the pictures from a 1997 attack up in Davis, California, but right around the same time frame. Yeah. 
But that would be my question. Is there surveillance camera as he's taking the money out from the ATM? We just have the one. And that's a subsequent attack a year later. So were there no surveillance cameras around ATMs in 96? I mean, it could be, you know, I used an ATM the other day that there was actually a sign on it that said the camera doesn't work. Okay. (laughs) So, well, right before I retired, I was helping an agency with a case. It was a homicide case, but then the victim's ATM card was used in Oakland. And, you know, all you see in the ATM photo is this just dark shadow That does no good because the light is behind the guy's head, so his face is dark. They need to have lights shining up from the ATM so you actually see the guy's face. It's a fair point. Yeah. It's a fair point. When you have better surveillance on the city bus than you have at the ATM, I don't know. So this first victim, when he leaves the house, did he cut her loose or she had to find a way to free herself? You know, she ends up, I think, finding a way to free herself. So this is the first case in terms of how I got involved in NorCal. And so my role was I was with the crime lab and I was doing the serology and the DNA work. What's serology? So serology is basically looking for physiological fluids. So I'm screening the evidence from this rape case. I'm looking at the sexual assault kit. I'm looking at her bedding. I'm looking at all the various items this guy touched, looking to find sources of DNA, as well as documenting other evidence, trace evidence, you know, collecting hairs and stuff. And so I'm working this case. And of course, I'm reading the case file and it's like, well, this guy used a condom each time and he flushed the condom. So what's the likelihood that I'm going to get in 1996 sufficient DNA to do anything with? Fortunately, the comforter that she was laying on when I was screening it, I found like 17 different stains, but one stain had sperm in it. And so I was able to get a DNA profile, eliminated the one known consensual sexual partner that we knew of. And so I was like, oh, this could be the offender. And it was a tiny amount. And the only thing I can think of is, well, he took the condom off and there was a little drip. And this is in the days really with the type of technology we had before being able to search a database. So now I just had this profile. It was this old DQ Alpha polymarker system. I'm sorry? (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's the name of the markers that we were looking at. Literally, I'm developing these strips with blue dots showing up, telling me what the guy's type was. It is old DNA technology, but it was much, much better than the old blood typing, the ABO system or the old enzyme systems that we used. So at least I had a DNA profile. And... As I was looking at this case, California DOJ, their analysts out of their sexual habitual offender program, their shop program, had issued an alert saying, hey, we think there's a similar case that occurred four years prior in 1992 in Vallejo, California. So I was like, okay, well, let me take a look at that. So I reached out to that agency, and I'd been working with that agency pretty closely and had them submit their evidence. And in that case, you had, again, a woman who was home alone, and she ends up being confronted by a guy in her house, and she's raped, and there was semen stains on a sofa cushion. And so I ended up doing the DNA on that, and it matched So now I was like, oh, so this guy has a previous attack, but was four years prior. And how close is Vallejo to Martinez? It's basically right across the Delta. So there's a bridge that goes across the Sacramento River Delta from Martinez into a small town called Benicia. And then right next to Benicia is Vallejo. And Vallejo is a much, much bigger and busier city when it comes to crime. So we got two cases separated by four years. This guy starting to fit the definition of a serial rapist. So at this point, I'm reaching out to California DOJ DNA lab saying, hey, we need to try to get a DNA profile that is searchable against the FBI's CODA system, because the type of technology my lab was doing was not. Turns out, they were working a case. The FBI was? This is the California Department of Justice. Ah. And so the California Department of Justice has a DNA laboratory that's right in Contra Costa County where I was working, but it services the entire state of California. 
And so they were getting all these cases from across the state coming in. And so I'm now talking with a DNA analyst up there, and I'm giving that analyst the profiles that I've got from these two cases, the Vallejo case and the Martinez case. And they end up hitting to another case, and this was up in Chico, California, in 1997. So there's been a passage of time. That's quite a ways away from the Bay Area. From the Bay Area, Chico's probably maybe a three-hour drive. So it's pretty far north up there in California. And in that particular case, a woman is home alone. She's awake, and she's confronted by a man. She actually gets into a fight with him and grabs a pair of scissors and stabs him in the forearm. Go, girl. Yes, and he leaves his blood. And so the DNA from that blood stain in that case matched my Vallejo and Martinez DNA samples. Okay, so now we know this guy after Martinez had moved up to Chico. Still didn't know who he was, but at least could understand, okay, he is definitely moving around the northern part of California. And you'll see as we go through the series, there's a reason why he's called the NorCal Rapist, because he is attacking all over northern California. Golden State killer D'Angelo was attacking all over the state of California. For whatever reason, NorCal is just, as far as we know, up in northern California. The interesting thing in that 1997 case up in Chico is the way he got into the house is he was able to get into the victim's garage and he used basically like a hammer and just hammered his way through the drywall right next to the garage door and was able to, through that hole, unlock the garage door leading into the house. Oh, my God. That's terrifying. Yeah. This is somebody who at least minimally understands how homes are constructed and drywall's easy to go through. Right. This guy's a monster. We haven't had those types of cases in my jurisdiction, but I'm thinking about you. At the same time, you've got all these other serial offenders that are doing other types of things. Are you noticing similarities? Is there any part of you is like, this could be this guy, but it could be this guy. I mean, are the MOs similar or? So when you're talking about like, I'm working all these different cases, I'm reading all these different case files, you know, a lot of them are unsolved cases. Which ones have MOs that seem to be standing out? Am I thinking, can I link them by MO? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And initially, when you start seeing this type of serial rapist, at this point in time, I was already working the East Area Rapist series, which we hadn't seen that guy in Contra Costa County since 1979. But it was like, well, is it possible? Right. So before you get the DNA back on that first good sample that you've got, and then you figure out, okay, this is a different person. Very different, especially when you read the East Area Rapist slash Golden State Killers M.O., and how he would deal with his victims. He was anger retaliatory. This guy was, I mean, he's a psychological sadist, anger retaliatory. He is not laying down and whispering sweet nothings into his victims' ears. Right. The dishes on the back of the husband when he got to the houses that had two people in them. Yes, that's right. So very different. And very early on in the East Area Rapist series, even the 1970s era psychologists that were being consulted with said, this guy will kill. And that's typically what you see with these anger retaliatory types of offenders versus the power reassurance types of offenders generally don't escalate to homicide unless it's to eliminate a living victim. That's not what they are about. And that's what's interesting about the Chico case. I'm assuming she fought him off and he wasn't successful. He ran off. So there is no sexual assault in that particular case. Good for her. Yeah. This particular offender, he wants his victims to actually like him and enjoy what is happening. Absolutely. It's disgusting. Yes. Basically, these victims are a proxy for a real-life consensual partner. That's so gross. Sometimes I'll be talking in front of a group, you know, at Citizens Academies or, or whatever, and some of the women will say, well, what do I do if I'm confronted in these situations? And it's one of those things where it depends on who the offender is, what kind of offender we're talking about. If you are dealing with the power reassurance type of guy, he likely is going to give up pretty quickly if you're fighting him hard. However, not all offenders are like that. And I always tell women, you fight, fight, fight until you realize you're going to lose. And if this guy seems to be amping up, he's liking you fighting. And he's just so physically dominant, you don't stand a chance. Play dead. You got to find a different survival strategy. Yeah. 
the sexual sadist. I mean, the worst of the worst in terms of the horrors that those types of individuals inflict and the pain that they inflict on the victims. They want that, and they want to see the terror. They want to experience that fight. And there are case examples of women recognizing I'm not going to win this. I'm dead. And they just go limp and the guy just stops and gets up and walks away because he no longer is getting what he wants. So I just say, fight, fight, fight until you realize I ain't winning and he's liking it. And then you do the opposite and see if that stops. And if he doesn't stop, then you just got to keep fighting again. You know, so it really is kind of you have to experiment. God, that is uh, harrowing. When I've heard you talk about the Golden State Killer, originally you thought... You were looking for the troll under the bridge. Yeah. And, of course, that turned out not to be true, although one could say D'Angelo is the biggest of trolls. He's a little trollish, yeah. Yeah. Did you start to develop a profile for the NorCal rapist? At this point in time, I just had the three cases, Vallejo in 92, Martinez 96, the Chico in 97. Did not have a good sense outside of physical descriptions. And he was being described as somewhat of a slender, young, in fact, male, not a very big man at all. And in terms of his occupation or his level of intelligence, there were some indicators that you're dealing with a reasonably intelligent offender, but at this point in time, couldn't really get a good feel or a good read of what was going on. But then we have another case. And this is also in the same year as the Chico case. And this was in Davis, California, where now we have two co-eds, happened to be Asian females who were attending UC Davis. They were roommates and he goes in and he ends up attacking both of them, gets one bound and, and sexually assaults the other one. And of course, this is the case where he takes the ATM card and drives up to Woodland, which is you know, about a 15 minute drive north of Davis and uses that ATM. And that's the image that Dave was talking about with the opaque mask. He's got that clear mask on, almost looks like he's mugging for the camera. He's sitting there and you can see his profile. You can see his straight on. He almost looks like he's smiling. He knows he's being photographed and he doesn't care. Yeah. And when he's sexually assaulting these women, is he wearing a mask still or are they able to see his face so they can identify him? He's typically blindfolding these women. Before they get a look at him. Although I have heard that witness statements are highly unreliable, especially under stress. You forget things. Honestly, even from police officers, you get in this adrenaline dump type situation right away. And there's been plenty of times where you'll have an officer say he had black pants on with a gray hoodie and he actually had gray pants on with a black hoodie. It's easy to transpose those things under stress. And so with victims who aren't inoculated to that type of stress, for them to gather that type of information and lock it in, there's occasions where you have witnesses that are just dialed in and they get it right on the money. That's what they focus on is, I'm going to get a great description of this guy. And to deal with that in the middle of what's happening to you, those are exceptional cases. But it's really difficult to 100% rely on somebody's recollection of what's happening when they're in the middle of that. The Chico case, you know, that victim is face-to-face with NorCal rapist. And so there was a composite that was done. Basically, we had a composite of the face, but also just his physique. She basically had the artist draw him from head to toe. Young, she described his skin as having like pockmarks, like acne scars. It's just interesting. You see this all the time now that the guy's been identified composite really doesn't look anything like. (laughs) Waller's been arrested as an NorCal rapist, but what looks like him is the ATM photos. Even though he had that mask on, it really did not obscure his face at all, hardly at all. He knows he's being photographed and he doesn't care. Yeah. So he shows up in the Chico victim's house and completely surprises her. She's not expecting someone to come through a garage door and he's not disguised. He's just going to start his attack and overtake her and she fights him off yeah okay but now his attacks are getting closer together when he goes to davis yes so we have the two in 1997 davis and chico and then he goes quiet and we don't hear from him for three years and then he does attack again back in davis in 2000 And then he goes quiet for six years. Oh. And then his last attack was up in Sacramento 
in 2006. And how far is that from Davis? From Davis, uh, where he attacked in Sacramento is probably about a 45-minute to an hour-long drive, roughly. With the cases at this point were identified to him that we know of for the entirety of the series, he wasn't a high-volume guy. He would attack once, and then it could go years without another attack that we know of. All these cases that I've brought up, up through the 2006 Sacramento case, we have his DNA. They were all linked with DNA. But even before the Sacramento case, one of the things like I had done with the Vallejo is I was trying to figure out, well, does he have anything earlier? And ended up finding a cluster of very similar cases in Sonoma area, which is If you're not familiar with the Bay Area, people probably have heard of Napa Valley. Sonoma is right next to Napa, another big wine area. So in the town of Sonoma, there was several cases, but one that really stood out, and that was back in 1992, 1991, before the Vallejo case. And then there was one in Rohnert Park, which is, again, just right there in that Sonoma area. And ultimately, by digging into that Roner Park case, found evidence and got DNA and linked it to the series. So now, NorCal Rapist, the earliest one that we know of, is in Roner Park in 1991, as it stands today. And he was active until 2006. But the reality is it's seven cases. It's seven attacks spread out over 15 years. That seems unusual, yes? It's a little unusual, yeah, because typically these serial rapists have more volume to them. They go in spurts. Like the East Area Rapist phase of the Golden State Killer series, you would see once a month, once a month, and all of a sudden four in a week. And it's whether there's stressors going on in the guy's life, whether he has greater freedoms, and so he's able to go do things, you know. The wife has decided to go on vacation, and he's left home alone, and I'm going to go do my thing each night, you know. Just don't know. It all depends on the offender. But with NorCal, don't know what's going on. He was not a high-volume guy, but he just kept doing it over the course of 15 years. I'm trying to picture you in the office and you're getting alerts or notifications. Hey, we got another one. Uh-huh. And while you're working that case, you've got the East Area Rapist, and you've got all these other cases that you're working. Right. We all love the variety of this job. Like, you never know what to expect each day. But to go in and be like, okay, here we go. He's back at it. To work that kind of caseload, that's what fascinates me as a detective, is these guys that work these serial offender cases, and it's like... You're just waiting for the next ball to drop. That go on for great lengths of time. Right. And in this particular series, we had the attack in 2000 in Davis, and then we didn't have anything. And it's like, well, this guy's moved on. Of course, I've moved on. I'm doing other cases. And then we had the 2006. We have two women, again, two Asian women that were attacked up in Sacramento. So how do you get that notification? That actually came through the investigator from the Martinez PD case, a guy that I knew well, who ultimately became the chief of Martinez PD. And so, you know, I'm on the road. As soon as there's a meeting up in Sacramento where they're getting all these jurisdictions together, I'm up there. Uh, I'm making sure that I'm involved in that and listening to the circumstances of Sacramento's case. Sacramento's a big agency. And so this is Sacramento PD. And so they poured a ton of resources into investigating this series at that point. Once they recognized, oh, we've got the last case from this series so far. And in that case, a neighbor had video surveillance cameras set up and caught this guy's vehicle as it drove by their house. It was just a flash and, of course, no license plate, but they were able to identify it as this white Toyota 4Runner. And so that was just plastered all over the media. No other NorCal rapist attacks occurred after that. Goes dark. He goes dark. Really? And that's the gamble. You get what you want because he's not attacking anymore. But now that forerunner's not going to be out on the streets. In a garage somewhere or in a bush. Yeah, or he's not going to show up to any attacks with that forerunner. So they evolve as the investigation evolves. And of course, he's paying attention to what's going on. He doesn't want to be caught. I think he got scared at this point. He recognized, oh, that was a close call. 
And as far as we know, that's the last case that we can attribute to the NorCal rapist. I know that on the Golden State Killer investigation, part of the frustration was that agencies weren't talking to each other. And back in the 90s, I imagine it was more true than it is now. So I'm surprised and sort of heartened that you all would trade information as freely as you were doing it. Yeah, I think part of it at that point in time, especially at the very early part, you know, I'm working the Martinez case. I was the one that reached out to Vallejo. I was the one that reached out to Roner Park. I'm reaching out to California DOJ. So I'm doing my part to try to stitch this series together. Once that DNA stitching had occurred, that's when agencies were starting to recognize we've got a serious offender here. And I would say in the 90s, at least in the Bay Area, most certainly within my jurisdiction, agencies would communicate pretty openly. I've seen examples of agencies kind of close off. They've got this case and they don't want any help. They don't want to share information. That definitely does happen. But in this particular instance, across all these cases, the investigators were freely sharing their case files with each other. We did have several meetings over the course of the series where we got everybody who had cases in their jurisdiction in the same room. Like I've got both NorCal rapists and East Area rapists in my past. Well, there was other investigators that had the same thing. Caleb Pelt from Yolo County DA's office. Well, he was one of the original responders to the East Area Rapist attacks in Davis, California. He was also investigating the NorCal rapist. You see up in Sacramento, of course, East Area Rapist is huge in NorCal. So you have investigators up there that have had involvement with both. So there is almost a fraternity, if you will, of those of us that kind of were exposed to both of these series. And both of them at the time were completely unsolved. And everybody's all passionate about wanting to see both series solved. Right. So his last attack was in... 2006, up in Sac. And he was arrested in 2018. So what was the delay and how did you catch him? Well, that's where this uh, investigative genealogy comes into play. So with Golden State Killer, I had formed this small team. Me and my FBI partner, he's general counsel for FBI LA, were the ones marching down on Golden State Killer with the genealogy. And at a certain point, I knew in order to be successful, because I always believed Golden State Killer was SAC-based, I wanted people from Sacramento to be able to access their law enforcement, their little local law enforcement databases if we ever drilled down on somebody. And there were two individuals out of the DA's office that I had worked very closely with, and I want them as part of this team. And Due to some of the circumstances involved with the politics around the Golden State Killer investigation, we kind of had to go covert and we kind of kept this quiet even amongst other agencies that had stuff with the Golden State Killer. But in essence, I said, I want Lieutenant Kirk Campbell and investigative assistant Monica Tchaikowski on the Golden State Killer team. So we have this team that we're doing and learning the genealogy. And then, of course, we were successful in identifying D'Angelo. And Kirk and Monica from SAC DA's office got very proficient at doing the genealogy. So after we did identify D'Angelo, he's arrested. The elected DA from Sacramento had me come up and talk to all the Sacramento law enforcement about how this process worked. Also, this is when she's starting to establish her best practices in terms of, okay, let's limit how we're going to be utilizing this tool. But everybody in that room said the next case that we're going to do this on is NorCal Rapist. So they start marching down that path. I'm getting phone calls every now and then because there's some questions about how to do certain aspects of it. But once they got a genealogy-compatible DNA profile... And it searches GEDmatch. It searches the genealogy databases that they had access to. Now, Monica and Kurt, they just start drilling down based on what they learned in the Golden State Killer process. And quite frankly, Monica, who's the one that found D'Angelo in the family tree for Golden State Killer, within five minutes starting the tree building in NorCal Rapist, she had identified Waller. Shut up. Yes. Oh my God. I love that. (laughs) 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024, and Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/slash smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. So imagine here we are. This is a guy that's been offending since 1991. I can't tell you the amount of time I spent on NorCal Rapist. Even when I was an investigator with the DA's office, I was doing investigative stuff and coming up with investigative strategies to drill down on NorCal. And then Monica's just on a keyboard going boom, 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 boom. There he is. <laughs> that is incredible you get a phone call and you're thinking it's going to be another question like hey can i ask you something yeah hey i found him yeah i got him right here (laughs) already ran his uh previous vehicles that have been registered to him and he had a white toyota (laughs) forerunner i think we're on to him well part of the reason why she was able to do that so quickly is prior to this particular genealogy tool I had been using a different type of genealogy process in Golden State Killer, this YSTR DNA. So what ends up happening is, is that males, their sex chromosomes are XY. They get the X chromosome from mom, the Y chromosome from dad. Females get X from dad, X from mom. The interesting thing about the Y chromosome is it's passed down through the generations along the paternal lineage. So I have the same YSTR profile as my dad, as my grandfather on my dad's side. The Y comes down that lineage. There's mutations and stuff, but we won't get into that. Basically, just say it's the same. So genealogists have been using this for a while. The beauty of that from a genealogy standpoint is because in our culture, the male surname upon marriage is passed down on the male side. So in essence, the surname 
kind of follows the Y chromosome. For Golden State Killer, I had generated this Y STR profile, and now I'm searching what at the time was available online, this ysearch.org, looking for close enough matches so I could get his surname. And I never did, but then Monica, after she saw what I was doing in Golden State Killer case, she on her own said, hey, let me see what I can do with that on NorCal. And so she does, and she ends up getting a match in the ysearch.org database to a surname of Waller. And this is before we solve Golden State Killer, right? And so she passes that on to me. And so I'm kind of running various Wallers. I'm like, I got this Golden State Killer thing I'm really drilling down on. So I just kind of set that aside. So when they get the new genealogy test results and they start building family trees, within a few keystrokes, she saw a Waller pop up in the family tree. And she remembered, well, I've got that ysearch.org match of Waller. So she went down there and it was like, that looks like the guy. And then pull up his driver's license photo. I was like, it looks identical to that ATM photo. No way. Yeah. Yeah. That is incredible. That's good stuff. Wow. Like magic. Yeah. So that just shows the application. Learn the process in one case and then how that has translated to solve another case. And that's the snowball effect. So as other agencies develop people who get this skill set, you will see more and more cases getting solved because now they know how to apply the tool. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And so when I looked up Waller online, he's smirking in his mugshot. And so my question is, what was his affect when he was arrested? I do not know. I have not been privy to that part of the investigation. In fact, I know very little about him. The interesting thing to me is that, remember, you're asking where Vallejo was relative to Martinez. And I was saying it's right across this bridge that goes over the Sacramento Delta, and there's a small town called Benicia. Right. Literally, it's two miles away from where my office was. That's where he was living the entire time. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. As they're marching down, the DA investigators and the various agencies have been really digging into this guy. They've probably developed a very complete profile and could answer a lot of questions about him. I'm not privy to any of that information. The initial DNA match you get from him, is that a surreptitious DNA? By surreptitious DNA, is that when you guys follow somebody around at a distance and wait for them to discard a straw or a coffee cup or a cigarette or something like that? Yeah. I don't have direct knowledge. I can guarantee that would have been a surreptitious DNA sample, though. And then get the warrant. And then you get the warrant. Never base it on the genealogy results. That is just a lead. And it's like, well, he looks right. He's in the right places. Whatever, investigatively, you go, yeah, it's worth getting a direct DNA sample. And then you do your traditional forensic DNA test, the type of profile that's up in the FBI's CODA system that has withstood case challenges since the dawn of time of the DNA world. You go and get that sample. You do that technology. It matches your offender's profile. Now you have your arrest warrant. Yeah. And was he married? Does he have kids? Anything like that? I believe he he was married. I believe he was married to an Asian female. And, of course, he has, in terms of the demographics of his victims, I believe a majority of his victims were Asian. Not all, but about half It'd just be interesting to know what kind of, I hate to call it homework, but how he's working up, which victims he's selecting, how he's targeting these folks, and how much time he puts into that. In the Martinez case, the victim felt that he had called her at work after the attack. And so there was phone records that were being looked at to see any of those phone numbers could be tracked back to someplace, and it just never went anywhere. But he did seem to have some more knowledge of that particular victim than just being a random attack. And also in that case, I think he makes a statement while he's in the house that, uh, you know, I've seen you before. Those types of things where you're just like, okay, he's been watching me. Terrifying. The Jamie Kloss case up in Wisconsin. And I can't remember the offender's name. It was Jake Patterson. Yeah. Jamie Kloss is the 13-year-old girl who went missing for months. The guy broke into the house, blew away the parents, and then grabbed this 13-year-old girl, right? Yes. And kept her prisoner for 
like three months, 90 days, something like that. And she ended up escaping. But when they questioned him, the reason why he targeted her is he just happened to be driving through the town that Jamie lived in, and he saw her get off the bus. And he said, I knew right then that I had to have her. It's just flipping a switch for him. Right. You get into the mind of these guys and how they operate. That's really kind of the important thing to understand. And again, I go back to my profiler friend. She kind of mentored me in terms of some of the behavioral stuff. And I had a bunch of 1970s era unsolved cases, and they're all geographically in the same area. And there was one of the victims was a 42-year-old woman that had been jogging around a reservoir. And then there was also an 11-year-old girl right there, low crime area, low risk victims, and... And I was like, well, do I have the same guy here? But I've got such disparate age differences between these two victims. And Sharon said, you have to understand, sort of like in the Jamie Kloss case, is that at a certain point, the offender sees that victim and he makes that decision. That's going to become a victim. Now, that victim may turn out to be very different than who he thought she was, but he's still going to carry on because he's already made that decision. Even though, let's say, the girl, it turns out two separate offenders in this case, but you do see these guys attack women that are much older as well as kids. And what is their preference? And some of them, it is because they just see them from afar and think they're older than what they are. Right. I remember you saying in one of your episodes on the Murder Squad that it's actually not as common for these serial offenders to have a type. Right. Bundy had a type, famously, but we overemphasize this trait of these serial offenders. Well, and I think it is because of Bundy, because he is such an infamous serial killer and he had such a specific type that it's just assumed that that's what these predators go after is they lock in on a certain type. And I will tell you, a lot of the serial cases that I've worked, the victims usually, there's not a lot of overlap. I think NorCal probably has the most overlap of any of the cases that I've worked because you do see the Asian woman being attacked more frequently than others. Right. Whereas sex offenders, they have, you used to call it a a strike zone. Correct. In my caseload with children, I used to call it a strike zone, which was, you know, our vernacular for this is his preference. And I'm thinking about the child porn guys. They were interested in kind of a window of ages. So, you know, infants and toddlers or up to seven. Some are right at prepubescent up into mid-teens. So you have this spectrum of where people land on. But in my cases, with sex offenders who actually put their hands on people, typically their victims were all similar in age if they had multiple victims. Did you go to any of these crime scenes? Not in NorCal, no. So with the Martinez case, you get the evidence, the bedding, you do alternative light sources in the office there. I did a variety of techniques in order to try to locate the possible sources of evidence. The Martinez PD CSI, who I knew well, was the one that processed that scene. I got the scene photos. Now I've driven by that house many, many times. It literally, at one point, in my career where my office was located at, it was right across the freeway from that. Towards the end of my career at the sheriff's office, it was right across the street from where my office was at. So I know the location well, and then ended up going out to Roner Park. When I was investigating the case at the DA's office, I really thought this guy was somebody out of the Sonoma area. And so I started talking to Roner Park PD about let's do a social media push. Let's get, uh, you know, that composite from the Chico case out there. And then we had good composites actually from the Sacramento case. And early on, it's being described as slender and thin. And then when he shows up in 2006, after that six-year gap, those victims were saying he was chunky. He had man boobs. And I was like, oh, we've got a guy who's gained weight, you know? And so that would be a characteristic to put out there. In addition to, hey, here's this ATM photo, which I thought could identify him, as well as these composites. And we never got to that point. I had an FBI partner and I was like, here's this case. I'm working Golden State Killer. Try to go after that. But she's busy doing FBI stuff. And so we never did enact that strategy. Now that Waller's identified, well, he wasn't in Roner Park. He was just right across the river from where I was at. He's just going out 
to these locations to find victims and offend. Yeah, and maybe there's an anchor point there for him. I don't know, again, much about him. He could have family there. Maybe he attended school in his youth there. I have no idea. One of the strategies I did employ was because I thought that that mask didn't obscure his features, that ATM photo. It's a hard, clear plastic mask, but I'm looking at him going, I can see what this guy looks like, especially the profile. When he turns his head, I absolutely could see what his profile was. So I was part of an FBI task force, and so I had access to some FBI resources, and I asked, hey, what about facial recognition off of this? And they said, oh, absolutely. They talked to their facial recognition experts, and they said, yeah, there's enough there that we possibly could identify him. And then they ran it. They don't get a hit. But the problem was, at that time, and I think this is still the same today, is that the FBI's facial recognition database does not have the California DL photos in it. (laughs) What? Yeah. They were in the process of negotiating with the state about that. But because of Again, privacy concerns, misuse of that data, big brother aspects. We deal with it in patrol all the time. Out-of-state people don't have their driver's license on them. They say, my driver's license is out of this state, and we're trying to verify their identity. There's times where we have to reach out to the FBI to have them send the driver's license photo to us. They email it to our dispatch, and then they ship it out to us out on the street. And we go, oh, okay, yeah, that's them. And can it happen that fast? It takes a few minutes. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know the FBI was that much on call. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure that there's somebody just sitting there waiting by the phone. Okay, yeah, I'll send it out. No problem. I'm not sure how it works, but yeah, we get them at two in the morning. You can get them. I'm curious, when you talk about the Chico attack and that she fought back, Yeah. when's his next attack? After that Chico attack, he attacks, I believe, very quickly down in Davis. Because he didn't get what he wanted. That's the way I would look at that. He definitely had probably gotten psychologically geared up for Chico, and he isn't able to satisfy that compulsion, and now he's very quickly turning around and doing the attack in Davis. Yeah, that's the one instance in which we have two attacks in the same year. When he's injured during this attack up in Chico... Is there any indication of how serious that was, like one that would require an ER visit or something like that? I don't know. She just stabbed him with a pair of scissors. I don't think we have any information in terms of, I mean, it could even require surgery. If tendons were cut or nerves cut or something like that, it just left blood. And I'm assuming that they've probably learned at this point you know, and look at scars on his arms, you know, talk to the wife, etc. You know, what exactly happened in 1997 with his arm? One night he comes home with a bunch of gauze bandages all over his arm. What, what did he say happened? Right. Fell off my bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you finally identified who it was, was he in any police databases or was his record clean other than these horrific rapes? It was very, very little, if non-existent. Right. And were all of the rapes over the course of multiple hours like the first one had been? Yeah. Outside of the Chico one, all the other ones, we're talking four hours, six hours, eight hours, he would spend with these women. That's awful. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just the other day, I noticed 
that a guy in Livermore got picked up through genetic genealogy. Yes. Another sexual assault guy. And I think that was a 30-year-old case or something like that, right? Yeah, it's incredible. We're thrilled in law enforcement. We're thrilled about, I mean, this is groundbreaking work that Paul did. Yeah. It's reinventing the wheel. You see the response now by these companies that are doing the genealogy websites, and now you have the opt-out option. I don't want to be included in a database that's searchable for genealogy type stuff. And you think about the privacy concerns versus how valuable this is to get really dangerous people off the streets and solve old cases and provide closure to thousands and thousands of people. And you balance that. And I think when people hear the term genetic genealogy and law enforcement, of course, they're thinking law enforcement has access to people's genetic information. At no point in time did I have access to anybody's genetic information that was in the genealogy database. All I get is how much DNA they share with the guy I'm looking for. They share more DNA, they're more closely related. If they share less DNA, they're more distantly related. So that's so important. As we march forward and we have two different camps, people who are in favor of its use and people, of course, that don't want to see it used because of concerns of privacy, it's really educating all these people exactly how the technique is done because it's very, very different than what most people think it is. Right. The only thing you're in possession of is your own evidence. You're not looking at other people's DNA, just comparing it. Right. And the evidence that we have, the DNA profile from the Golden State Killer, for example, I mean, that was something that was lawfully collected, had a homicide case, you know, there's search warrants, a magistrate signed off on the search. And in essence, I can do anything I want with that DNA sample in order to solve that case. I'd imagine you have serial offenders out there now going, oh, God, I don't want my family to upload their DNA Families talking about at Christmas time giving gifts and 23andMe and Ancestry.com and all these other websites. Don't give that gift, please. These guys are sweating bullets. They are. They absolutely are because you think about it. If I had committed a crime and I know I've left my DNA, I'm going to do everything I can to prevent myself from getting caught again, right? I don't want my DNA to be collected because then they'll tie me to that homicide. Now these guys, they have lost control and... You've got family members that they know that could potentially do that, but then you have the extended family, the second, third cousins that they don't even know exist. They don't know who they are. Completely out of their control. Completely out of their control. And so that's part of the beauty of this is with the FBI's CODA system, which is an awesome, awesome investigative tool. It's solved so many cases, but it requires the person that you're looking for to actually be in the database in order to hit. With the genealogy tool, everybody has relatives that are in the database. You just hope to get close enough relatives to where you can do the triangulation method. But it's basically traditional genealogy work in order to kind of zero in on the person that you're looking for. It's so fascinating. And then there's also some open databases as well where you can submit your DNA and say, yes, okay, have at it, law enforcement, all good, as opposed to 23andMe and Ancestry, where you could opt in, opt out, which are rather more guarded. Isn't that true? What you see with the big genealogy companies, Ancestry, 23andMe, they're a closed system. So they're not even allowing law enforcement to be able to search their database directly. The two primary genealogy databases that law enforcement can access is uh, GEDmatch, as well as Family Tree DNA. And GEDmatch is a unique one because it is this kind of public open source type of database where people can take their DNA profile out of Ancestry and 23andMe or MyHeritage or Family Tree DNA and upload it into GEDmatch. So in a way, you're searching across a subset of all these other databases. So it's valuable. The problem that we've run into from a law enforcement perspective is because of a case in Utah where an investigator used this technique on a, it was an assault. An old woman was assaulted by a teenage boy in the church. It wasn't a sexual assault, it wasn't a homicide. And the genealogy community were outraged that law enforcement 
did that type of crime and used the genealogy technique and put pressure on the owner of GEDmatch. And so what he did in one foul swoop basically is shut everybody in the database off from being searchable to law enforcement. And basically now they have to explicitly opt in saying, yes, I want law enforcement to be able to search my profile. Basically saying that that's not serious enough of a crime for you to use this type of technique. Right. right. I'm sure the old ladies like felt pretty serious to me. And that's going to be the balance. And U.S. DOJ has come out with an interim policy on what is being called forensic genetic genealogy. This FGG is what they do it. So now all law enforcement is going to have to abide by that policy. And they're coming up with MOUs on how they're going to move forward to fit underneath the DOJ policy. And there's going to be lots of discussion because there's some goofiness within that policy, to be frank. What's an MOU? Memorandum of Understanding. And Anne-Marie Schubert from Sacramento, the elected DA in Sacramento, she was the one that really got that ball rolling. Once we did Golden State Killer, she got all her agencies within Sacramento and basically said, okay, we want to use this tool, but we want to do it the right way. And so she developed basically a policy, best practices, as well as had all our agencies enter into this MOU with the DA's office where they say, we will only use this tool. On these cases, we'd be consulting with the DA's office. And there's a lot of things because it is recognized as being somewhat of a controversial tool out in the public. And we don't want to misuse it to a point to where now legislation gets passed saying law enforcement can't use it at all. Because it's kind of a superpower. In many ways, I would say it's like the nuclear weapon for law enforcement. (laughs) Don't take this away from us. We promise to play by the rules. Exactly. And the fear is, you know, we get a rogue detective out there that does this where he shouldn't, that causes the public outrage, or we get somebody who affects an arrest based on a genealogy result without getting that critical direct DNA sample to verify that you've got the right person. You don't want to rob somebody of their freedom based on just genealogy. Once you kind of isolate somebody based on genealogy, now you have to kick into your traditional investigations, your typical forensic tools to verify that's the right guy. You still have to do your due diligence. Yes. The last thing you want to do as an officer is create case law. That's one of the ways that I wanted to measure my career is I don't have case law named after me. Yeah, the Dan law. (laughs) (laughs) I do not want any part of that. But cops are notorious for taking a law and stretching it and manipulating it into a way where they're kind of abusing it. And then the next thing you know, the appellate courts intervene and we have case law and it takes it away from us. Right. You misused it. so You ruined it for everyone. Absolutely. In law enforcement, we were running into issues with statute of limitations. And now with DNA, at least our state has responded by giving us legislation and laws that extend our statute of limitations if there's DNA that's present, but it's not identified. That will extend our statute of limitations up to 25 years. Oh, that's fantastic. And one of the things we'll do with that DNA is we will basically write a warrant for whoever owns that DNA and then the statute of limitations, the clock stops because we've got a warrant for him. We've indicted him. Yeah, and that's what we had to do in NorCal because statute of limitations for the sexual assaults could have expired. And in fact, some of these cases, I was under the impression had expired, but some agencies were able to get the John Doe warrant based on the DNA profile. And in essence, that allows the clock to stop. So once you get that John Doe warrant, in essence, now it's like a homicide case in California. Never goes away. Never goes away. And until you find the guy that matches that uh, DNA profile. Yeah. You're indicted. We just don't know what your name is. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I can't imagine a more gratifying legacy than to have basically reinvented the wheel for law enforcement and provided a tool that is really, it's sort of the master key to so many of these cold cases. And you especially really based your career on cold cases for the most part because it was your passion of yours and you changed it. In many ways, I was just the right person to come along at the right time in the right case. Well, you're too modest, but um, okay. We appreciate the new playbook. (laughs) So thanks to you and your team. Well, no, I, I, I appreciate the thoughts. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Thank you. 
Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Soaring Bajan, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soaring Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at smalltowndicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.